Welcome to the Real Talk with Dana podcast. I'm your host, Dana Monsi's licensed dietitian, nutritionist, and body image coach. On this show, you'll learn how to listen to and trust your body instead of trying to control it. We'll dig into the healing power of nutrition from a non-diet, weight-inclusive, health-at-every-size approach. My guests and I will guide you through how to heal from digestive issues and hormonal imbalances, all while making peace with food and your body without obsession or restriction. Hello, Internet, and welcome to the first episode of the new year. Welcome back to the Real Talk with Dana podcast. So I wanted to do something a little bit different this year and kind of switch things up. And so I'm thinking of doing a theme for each month of podcast episodes. So to start us off, the theme for this month, January's podcast episodes, and my guest is going to be pursuing true health and feeling good without diets or protocols, shocker, I know, to kind of go against the grain and provide a welcoming alternative to the traditional shame-based January New Year's resolutions culture, aka fix yourself with a quote perfect diet and fitness and expensive wellness regime for 30 days, but actually it's only going to leave you feeling worse afterwards when you realize you can't sustain those perfectionist habits. So as you guys know, as always on this show, one of my main goals is to show you how you can pursue health and actually feel great from the inside out, mentally, physically, emotionally, without doing diets or cycling through elimination protocols until you're blue in the face, even when the pressure is so high to join our lifestyle change community, aka diet cult, this January. So remember, if those things actually worked long term, you wouldn't have to reset again year after year, month after month to actually feel good. So speaking of feeling good, I want to introduce today's guest. So it is Robin Conley Downs, who is an entrepreneur and the author of the new book, The Feel Good Effect, Reclaim Your Wellness by Finding Small Shifts That Create Big Change. Robin has a master's in education with an emphasis in behavior change and four years of public policy and health change at the doctoral level. So her work is tapping into edge science around psychology, neuroscience, mindfulness, and habits. So what are we talking about on today's episode? First, we're getting into the dark side of the wellness industry and how perfectionism, all or nothing thinking, and comparison get in the way of feeling good, being happy and healthy, and why all or nothing protocols in the pursuit of physical health can actually lead to burnout and a drastic decrease in your mental and emotional health and don't actually help with your physical health long-term either. We're also talking about what is chronic striving and why it is so damaging to our health and mindset and what we can do instead. Well, Robin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm so excited to chat. We were just saying before we jumped on that like we've run in so many of the same circles for a really long time, but we've never actually interviewed each other on either of our shows. So I'm excited to get to know you a little bit better and for the listeners to get to know you a little bit better. So tell us a little bit more about you and your story and maybe like how your business and your brand has evolved to where it is today. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. I do. I'm honored that you would share me with your audience. It's such a, I feel it's like a big responsibility. So thank you. Um, so I'm Robin. I have the website, realfoodwholelife.com, the Instagram, realfoodwholelife. And then I have a book called The Feel Good Effect and then a podcast called The Feel Good Effect. And so I can talk about like how that happened, where I started a website that's called Real Food Whole Life. And then now I have this Feel Good Effect part of the brand. But my personal story, um, 
is really about a person who started out with a very, um, like very much a striver. So I was always pushing and ignoring kind of my body. I wouldn't even have put it in those terms because I didn't know that your body like had anything to say. And I would have thought that was a ridiculous thing to think or say. That was the kind of very like skeptical and research focused. So I spent most of my career in um, research and academics. So as I, I was a university instructor, I spent close to 15 years doing research on behavior change. So applied behavior analysis, how people make and form and sustain behavior change through habits and through environment. Um, and then I did, a ma or I, I'm sorry, I did a master's degree in that. And then I did a doctoral program in public policy. So how we can create, maintain, and sustain change at a more structural level. Because one was looking at individual change. So what you need to do as a human person. And then that's not the end of the story, right? Because a lot of times we either focus on one or the other. There's very few people that do both, partly because it doesn't work very well to try to study both. <laughs> um, so I did the doctoral program. And at the time, I was uh, I had been pushing in my career, pushing in my just in everything. Um, I'd had a couple of miscarriages, infertility, um, was able to get pregnant finally, um, difficult pregnancy, had my amazing, beautiful, perfect daughter, um, and then went right back into that life where I was working 60 hours a week running a research nonprofit um, in school full time. And I was on the bottom of the list. I wouldn't even say I was on the list at all. And one day I woke up and my, I went downstairs and I was like doing the hustle shuffle to get the diaper bag and the daycare stuff and whatever. And my husband said, what time are you going to be home? And I looked at him and I said, I don't know, because I, I didn't know. And I, then I started crying like hysterically <laughs> and he was like, Oh, okay. That's what's what. And uh, he's a clinical psychologist. So he's like, okay, what have we opened here? And really it was this breaking point for me of um, knowing that my life had gotten so out of control that I didn't even know what time I would be home. And that was devastating to me. And that wasn't the life that we had committed to each other or for me, what I wanted. Um, and so then I threw myself into wellness like it was my job and committed to everything, like like it was school. I don't know if anyone can relate to that, but I was like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it right. So I was working out an hour every day and like doing all the things that the internet tells you to do. And the interesting thing is that that worked in terms of external results. Like I felt more energy for part of the day. I was skin clear, like felt lighter, all those things. But I was exhausted and I was still beating myself up all the time, comparing myself all or nothing, all in, all out, all in, all out, on the wagon, off the wagon. So this is sort of a long story, but I think it's relatable to a lot of people. So I like to tell that, especially when people look at me and they're like, you have this podcast and your book and wellness, la, like <laughs> the heavens open up. That's not how it ever happened. And, and I want you to know, like it was hard and I went through this whole challenge. But what happened was that then I said, well, what if I'm not broken? What if I'm not a failure? What if my approach is failing me? And so I went to work with all my background in neuroscience, psychology, behavior change, policy, and said, what if we create a different approach? 
So that led me to start the uh, Feel Good Effect podcast, which I've had for years now. And then from that came the book. I had also started the website because I did want to share recipes that were accessible because I felt like so much of the recipes I were trying, the recipes I was trying to make at the time were incredibly complicated. I was a working mom and I was like, who wrote this? Like, what is their life? And so I wanted to share accessible, easy, but then this, this other part was so missing. I felt like in the industry and the research as well. So that's the actually surprisingly condensed story of 20 years of how I got here and how the brand has evolved in that time. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. I mean, I think it's so important to talk about that because I mean, especially in the age of social media, when everything just looks like a highlight reel and you just see one snapshot of this person's life. And if they have any kind of influence or platform or podcast or whatever it is, people can look at that and just be like, oh my gosh, they have it all together. And you know, they've got everything going for them. Whereas behind the scenes, you have one, no idea what's going on at that moment. Like it's probably not as rosy as it seems. And then on the other side, like you have no idea how many years it took them to get to that point or like what they had gone through to get to that point too. Yeah, it is. And I think people look at me, I don't know what people think, but that that I never struggled or that I've always, you know, had this awareness about being about being present and using mindfulness and using the science to simplify and um that I, you know, my motto is gentle is the new perfect. And I like to tell people that, especially who that feels like a grown eye roll kind of thing, or as my daughter says, eye roll, eye roll, head shake, sigh. When she thinks something, she's like, oh, mom, eye roll, eye roll, head head shake, sigh. Um, That I wasn't the person who thought that self-compassion or flexible thinking or, or gratitude was the solution. I thought that was preposterous. And I think I, I really was the queen of making everything harder than it, it had to be, overcomplicating things. And um, that that's just part of my story, though, too. And that if that's where you are in any, any variable of that, any variation of that, that's pretty normal, too, because it's partly how our brain's wired. And a lot of it's the system that we live in and the marketing machine that um, really reinforces it. Uh, so yeah, I like to share it cause I mean, I'm still imperfect. Like I have endometriosis. I have an autoimmune disease. Like I had surgery last year. This isn't about achieving a perfect outcome that somehow you keep forever. Um, and so being able to understand for yourself, what does it really mean to be healthy is to me what ultimately is healthy. Yeah, for sure. So I want to dive right in, um, talking about like the marketing machine and you kind of alluded to this a little bit when you were talking about your story of like you did all of the things that the internet told you to do but as a result of that you kind of dug yourself into this really deep hole which happens to a lot of people of feeling like I feel like I'm doing all of the things and yet I still feel really crappy even if you do have some of these markers of like oh I'm you know feeling better but like not really you know if you're feeling better physically then a lot of the time if you're following all these ideals let's say then your mental health and your emotional health and all the things are going out the window so can you talk a little bit more about the dark side of the wellness industry yeah <laughs> this is like my podcast tours literally talking about the dark side of the wellness industry, which is not at all what I thought was going to happen when this book came out. But I realized that um, like literally I was on Talia, uh, Talia's 
Party My Plants podcast and she titled that episode Wellness Whistleblower. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? But because to me, it's so obvious. I think through my research back and coming into this industry from outside, like I didn't start out as a dietitian. I didn't start out as a coach. I started out completely on the other side. And so to me, it's actually pretty clear what's going on and why it's so problematic and why it's so damaging. The fact that most people don't recognize that, that it's invisible is really says a lot about the, the real harm, the deep harm that it's causing. So, I mean, there's two things that's going, that are going on. And you mentioned that your listeners like are learners. So hopefully you don't mind a little science here, but just like a simple neuroscience lesson in how our brains work is that, you know, when you, when you go through your life, there's certain things that are predisposed and certain things that are influenced in your environment and in the way that the system is created. And that really forms what I call mindset. And I know mindset gets used a lot. So I'm not talking about manifesting here. I'm talking about the actual way your brain is wired. And so when I say mindset, I'm talking about um, the way that you think about things. And the way that you think is somewhat hardwired and somewhat influenced by, by marketing and where you grow up and all these things. So when you, the way you think influences your, your habits and your actions, which gets you your results. And that way of thinking can be changed. So when I talk about the striving mindset, again, that's what we've found in the research to be some of the biggest barriers to people having long-term sustainable change, healthy change. The things that get in the way are perfectionist-based thinking, all or nothing thinking, which I have a feeling you talk about a lot here, and comparison. And this has been confirmed in the research that these are the, like we think it's about the habits or what we're eating or this or that or other thing. Most of the time, I would say 70% of the time, it's about the way that we're thinking about things. So there's an alternative to, to the striving mindset, which I can talk about, but your question was about marketing. So when, when we can see that um, perfectionist-based thinking, which is really um, mistake avoidance and impossible standards, that's how I define it, um, all or nothing thinking comparison, those are naturally hardwired into the brain. So most people are born with those tendencies because they're evolutionarily helpful and they can be helpful. Like comparison is how children learn in many cases, but when you overlay the marketing machine, so um, specifically individualism, which is just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, that it's your responsibility to fix everything and you overlay capitalism, which is, selling people their failures and faults so that they buy more things. Um, it's this perfect storm. And I believe it's led us exactly where we are. And especially in this post-COVID post world, like it exacerbated all those issues. So I, I love to help people see clearly like what's going on in their brain and also what's going on in the environment to let you know that it's not at all your fault if you're feeling this way. Um, there's some real reasons and there are some real fixes. Yeah. The the whole time that you were talking about that, I hope that people can like identify 
what that machine is. But the whole time you were saying that, I was like, the diet culture industry, the diet yeah. culture industry, yeah. <laughs> like the fitness industry, like yeah. all these things that are marketing to us, especially because this episode is coming out like right around the new year, right? So like all of the marketing that's being thrown at you right now, that's basically like, oh, you know, feel not feeling great about 2020, like time to get your shit together so you can feel uh, better in 2021. It's just, right. it's going to be horrible. It is. And you know that, you know, the week before, between Christmas and New Year's is usually that week where people like sort of go quote unquote off the wagon thinking they're going to start over, reset all the code words um, for diet in the new year. Well, I feel like 2020 has been the week between Christmas and New Year, the entire year. And so I think people are especially susceptible to these messages that they're like, you know, I haven't been moving as much as I want to or in a way that feels good. I have you know, for a very real reason, been emotionally eating or dealing with loneliness with food or all of those reasons that we turn to food. And, um, and I want to change that. And so my only, what I see as the solution is all or nothing is to go, I've been all out. I'm going to go all in to compare myself to others or to myself in the past, by the way, comparison sometimes is most damaging when we compare ourselves to past versions of ourselves and or perfectionism, which is mistake avoidance. So saying that you're going to like do the perfect meal plan in the second that it doesn't go that way, you feel that you've messed up and you beat yourself up. And that impossible standards thing, again, like 100% of the time, you said diet culture, yes, fitness, yes. But really, the whole wellness industry has taken these mechanisms, these levers of perfectionist thinking all or nothing thinking comparison. I'm not sure if there's like some evil genius room where they're planning it <laughs> and they know that these are the things or if it's more just through, you know, reinforcement on their end. But absolutely, if you look at what's happening in self-care, if you look at what's happening in like clean beauty, and by the way, I do, I do work with some of those companies that are doing it right. So I don't think it's all bad, but the formula that's worked in diet culture, that's worked in fitness, whatever we want to call the fitness industry, is now being applied across the board. And even self-love and self-acceptance. You know, when I hear people that are pushing back about self-acceptance, I'm like, whoa, we don't need to push back against self-acceptance. Let's push back about against self-acceptance being taught through a perfectionist lens. So anytime you see something being pushed at you through those lenses, perfectionist, all or nothing thinking comparison, just turn around and walk the other way because the problem isn't necessarily the thing. It's the way it's the approach, right? And we can do something different, but first you have to be able to see it clearly. Right. It's like pulling, it's like in, in the Wizard of Oz when they finally pulled the curtain back and they're like, there, don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain. You know, it's just like when you can finally see it, oh my gosh, it's like you put on 3D glasses or something and then everything is suddenly like coming right at you and it's it's impossible to unsee it, right? And for some people that can be like a really jarring experience and they can go through a whole bunch of different emotions of like, how did I not see this before? I'm so frustrated with myself. But then that also plays into those three tendencies that we're talking about is like, you can't approach a new way of thinking with the same like tendencies that got you here in the first place. So you can't like perfectionist your way 
into actually feeling good, being happy and healthy, because if that actually worked, then your perfectionist tendencies that you know from when you were a kid would have gotten to you, gotten you to that place already. And yet here we are. Yes. And that is the, like my quest of life is to help people to understand that. And it's so much, it's such a heavier lift than I thought because it is, um, it's hidden. It's in, it's in our culture, it's in our system and it's in our brains, all three things that are uh, really hard to actually see what's, what's going on. But when you see it, it is so empowering and you have so much choice and agency. Um, but I started the book with the mindset section because when I go into the more um, like habit routine section, I want, I keep reminding people like no matter what, if you start coming at this habit change with perfectionist space thinking, you're going to end up in the same spot. If you come at anything with that decluttering, like career change, entrepreneurship, a hundred percent of the time, that is the thing that's going to make, hold you back, but also make the process miserable. It sucks all the joy out of it. So I know that it's not the sexy thing, um, but I, it's really the thing that will change your life and is really like very accessible and like mostly free. So it just takes a little bit of work, but I know you all listening are here for that. Right. Which, you know, sometimes the work is exhausting, especially if you're living in this, you know, COVID age, like the daily demands that we have in our physical, emotional, mental well-being are like a lot more than they used to be for a lot of people. So it is hard to do this work. But I think, you know, going back to the point of perfectionism, people-pleasing, constant comparison is actually getting in the way of feeling good, being happy and healthy. Could you talk more about, and I know you talk about this in your book, so we'll talk about that for people later, but can you talk more about the false assumptions about how to get to lasting change? Yes. So um, again, it goes back to that individualism thing that we think it's all about our own personality or our drive. And this is, I would say true for almost every person I've ever worked with um, research-wise and um, as like a private kind of consulting is that we think that we need to have more motivation. So we think if it's not working, it's because I'm not motivated enough. I'm not disciplined enough. I don't have willpower or I just haven't found like the perfect system that will somehow magically make my life that I can like do even in the my life will suddenly change and I'll be able to get there. And one of the things about policy analysis, so that's the whole job of people in government is to write policy briefs for politicians to help them decide on what they're going to do. And one of the first things you do when you're doing policy analysis is identify assumptions. And then you ask, are those true? So I really try to help people to ask, like, is that true? Is it true that you are failing because you're not a motivated person? Or if you're using the word failing, that's not necessarily what people might identify with different things. But if you're not feeling good, if you're not feeling joyful in your life, are you, is it true that you're not disciplined enough? Is it true that you're not, don't have willpower? Or is it that perhaps that there's this other thing that's going on? Because if you think it's because of willpower, then you're going to try to maybe change your willpower, which by the way, is really hard to move the needle on <laughs> um, versus like actionable things that you can do to change. So did that answer your question? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, you know, we've been talking a lot about the diet and body image and like those marketing industries side of things, but something else that I know a lot of people have struggled with in 2020 and like always, but definitely came out more during the quarantine period. Um, and I know you spoke about this like way back in August on your Instagram, but you said like, this year will not be defined by your productivity. And I think people attach a lot of value and a lot of worth to productivity when we're talking, whether we're talking about business or we're talking about health or we're talking about anything else. Yes. So I actually think that people are conflating wellness with productivity. And what I mean by conflating is like a very academic thing to say. Like sometimes I say things, I'm like, does anyone know what I'm talking about? Not to insult people, but that's just an unnecessarily complicated word. What I mean is people treat wellness like it's another form of productivity. And if you think that that's not true, just ask yourself if ever wellness actions and habits like working out or eating well or meal planning or um, meditating or going on a walk, if that's ever an item on your to-do list. And then if it feels like it's too many items on your to-do list, well, the whole idea that it's an item on your to-do list is treating it like it's productivity. And therefore, you're probably not living up to your own unrealistic expectations. And therefore, you feel like you're not doing well enough. And therefore, it's on the, on the wagon, off the wagon. And, and the way through that, one is to notice it and to say, is wellness about productivity for me? Is it about getting more done? That's a powerful question to ask. If the answer is no, I don't want wellness to be about productivity, then you kind of look at it from what are you trying to optimize? And there is a section in the book, Dana, about are we optimizing for doing more or are we optimizing for how we feel? And what a freaking radical thing to do in your life to say, I'm going to start optimizing my day for how I feel. You know, like I didn't think it was that radical, but apparently it is. <laughs> so I invite you to do the same. Just to ask those questions. Like, am I treating this like productivity? And if so, is that what I want to do? And if I don't, can I, what would happen if I optimized how I f- want to feel and come, up, come from, a play, from that place? I imagine that that process can be really sticky for people because there's like a lot of overlap, right? Like even even if you think about, um, I know there are, I'm like a big paper planner person. So I've used like passion planner, law of attraction planner, like all these other ones. And they have these little like habits checklists at the bottom. And I've actually never thought about it in this way before, but thinking about like these habits that they have on there, even though the habits on there can be very helpful with improving your mental health and your overall wellness and whatever, meditating, gratitude, journaling, whatever it is, right? I've actually never thought about, do these things make me feel better because of the practice themselves or because you're checking something off on the list? Because they do have little like habits trackers is what they call them, right? And you like get to put a little checkbox like every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then at the end of the week, you're like, good, I get a big gold star because I meditated every day this week. Yes. And I hope that people start to look at wellness through that lens. Like, is this another 
form of productivity. And let's talk about a, an, an alternative because I think I am like fully a box checker. Like I will just put something on my list so I can cross it off. So I'm not trying to take that away from you if that's like important to you. And reinforcement, seeing progress is really important for the human experience. Growth is really important. But the fact that it's all of a sudden in every planner is just, it just speaks to productivity co-opting, co-opting wellness. And then you see this slight pushback. And I would say it's mostly from women who already have full-time jobs and who already have, you know, I'm a full-time parent. I'm not, I mean, I'm a co-parent with my husband, but like right now, my daughter never leaves my house. So I have the full-time <laughs> homeschool job. I have the full-time running the household job. And so then when someone suggests to me that now I have a full-time wellness job or now on my productivity planner, I also have to meditate every day and I have to drink a certain amount of water and I have to meal plan and blah, 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 blah. Then that starts to feel um, like I'm not living up and it's a source of guilt. It's a source of, um, you know, feeling like I've fallen off the wagon. And also it takes away my power because it's not about you know, my value and how I want to feel. It's about getting the box checked, which, so I, let's talk about an alternative, but I want to pause there because it's, it's such an important piece. And I'm not saying you don't have to want to be productive. I'm just saying that, do you want wellness to be your source of productivity? Yeah, that's a super interesting way to think about it. And it is, it is kind of a catch 22 because I am also a box checker. Ask anyone, like I love lists partially because I have a really horrible short-term memory so I'm like if I don't write it down it's gonna go out of my brain and I'm never gonna remember it again right but I also love like checking off those lists and you know whatever always on paper I am not like a phone to-do list person but then it's like with you (laughs) do I feel better about checking off these things because I find value in productivity or is it because the practice itself of whatever it is meditating journaling, doing yoga, drinking water, you know, all of the things, all of those alone can help you feel better. But are they actually making you feel better because of the practice or is it because you're checking off the box just to, you know, reiterate for people? But yeah, let's talk about the alternative. Yeah. So the alternative is to start from how you want to feel and identify that. So I I'm not suggesting I am such a paper planner, list maker, checker, boxer, whatever. (laughs) Like I want to make a planner. That's my dream. But uh, so I'm not saying that you, if that works for you not to, and I'm certainly not saying don't meditate and drink water, like meal plan. We, those are actually really effective things to do in your life. What I'm saying is instead of just doing the thing that someone told you to do because it's the thing that the Instagram is saying to do and then making the boxes and checking them. Start first by asking, how do I want to feel in my life? And how do I feel right now? And then you can identify those habits that will contribute to how you want to feel. So for me, by by constantly, one, identifying how I want to feel and then secondarily asking, how do I feel? Which PS is a self-compassion practice on its own. Simply asking how you feel and honoring that is so incredibly powerful, but then I can tie my actions and habits to that. And so I'm optimizing how I want to feel versus getting more done. So for me with the water, I still might track my water but I might connect that more to how it makes me feel. So by the end of the week or the end of the day, if I didn't check my box, 
then I'm going to ask, how do I feel? Because, not because I didn't check the box, but how do I feel when I didn't get the water in? Right. And so the tracking, the, the checkbox might help you document. I like to use the word document instead of tracking because I do find that for so many people, tracking is a trigger for all or nothing thinking. The second you have a missed day or mixed box is like the second that you decide that you're done with the thing. So I just invite you to think about documenting. And when you document, you're saying, you can certainly do, did I do this or not do this today? But then the question is, when I don't drink the water, how do I feel? And if, if I don't feel as good, then the next day I'm going to try to drink the water, not because it's like giving me a gold star for wellness, but because it makes me feel really good. And that's why I do it. Yeah. And the interesting thing is like apps are smart, right? Like they now know, I mean, there's so many like water tracking apps and you know, all that stuff. And then when you hit your water goal for the day, the screen like explodes with fireworks and it's like good gold star. And that gives you a little bit of a dopamine rush and you're like, Ooh, I'm such a good person for doing this. And then it's kind of mutually reinforcing because the more you become in tune with your body, the more that you realize if you incorporate more of certain things you are going to feel better you know like I know for me if I only drink like I have this like big thing of water over here but if I only drink one of these a day I'm thirsty all day I'm definitely more tired you know like all this other stuff and you can see nutrition hat right now right like if you look at your urine you can see if you're dehydrated right and so that's like a very objective data point that you can use but Again, going back to the, is it the checking off the box? Is it the gold star? Is it the fireworks that I get on my app? Or is it that, okay, I actually do feel better if I'm drinking the water. Right. And I used to actually consult with some of those data engineers that, because that's all behavioral, like really super basic basic behavioral reinforcement. And we do get a dopamine hit from it what I would, I would love to do a new round of consulting if anyone listening wants me to talk to them about this, which is how could we build in that reinforcement around some other things? For example, I actually think Peloton does an, a, a reasonable job with this of like, uh, they reinforce, they do streaks, but in different ways. So it's not just like, it might be that you did three weeks in a row, even if you mess up your like days in a row streak. And so I do like that where it's like, okay, well, I didn't get five days in a row, but I did come back this week. But what? imagine if your apps or if your planners had boxes to check for, I asked myself what I really needed today and honored that. I didn't you know, drink enough water yesterday and today I realized that and I made a different choice. You know, I needed, um, I worked out really hard yesterday and I needed a rest day, so I took a day off fireworks, you know, like (laughs) all of, uh, you know, I, um, I'm feeling so overwhelmed. So I turn off my device fireworks. And so I'm not, again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't use those behavioral tools to, to, to monitor what we're doing, to see growth, to get reinforcement. I'm just saying that like every app developer and every productivity planner has used the lowest common denominator and choose in terms of what's easy to measure And that's what they're doing. Just because something's the easiest to measure doesn't mean it's the right thing to measure. And now I'm on a soapbox, so watch out. (laughs) (laughs) But this is so important because it's shaping our behavior. Like, and and I'm fine with that, but is that how we want our behavior to be shaped? And if it's not, we can do something else. 
And this is why it would be great if you could make a planner one day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do. I'd love to. I'd love to do a physical planner. Um, and, and I'm still kind of wrestling with that question of like, how do I give people a way to see growth and progress and mark things off, but not reinforce that all or nothing striving mentality? Um, and I think that I think it's coming along because a lot of it though, is this very simple, like, of course, I'd love it if you bought my book, but you can get the value without buying anything, which is really asking, like, how do I feel and how do I want to feel? And how are the actions, habits, and mindset that I am, you know, participating in in a day contributing to that or not contributing to that? And if it's not taking me where I want to go, what are the small shifts that I can make that will add up to big change over time. And I've heard from, you know, thousands of people that read the book or listen to the podcast, how validating it is. And I'm sure you do too. It's like, wait, I know what's, I know what's best for me. <laughs> like, This doesn't have to be so complicated. You know, I don't have to beat myself up all the time. It almost, I've heard from people, they almost feel guilty at first because it seems too simple or too whole. Um, then that's another conversation, but really I encourage you to think about that, that the tools are, you know, within you really, you do know so much about what's right for you. Which I think for a lot of people in the industries that we're talking about, or if you're in that mindset, if you've been in that mindset for a long time, that in itself is a radical idea because we've been told for so long, no, you actually don't know what's best for you, but you know what is best for you? This very general program that I made for whoever would buy it, not knowing anything about their biochemistry or food preferences or culture or socioeconomic status, but I definitely know better about what you need than you do, which then creates this complete disconnect with the ability to listen to our bodies and what our bodies really need in regards to food and habits and all of the things. But when that's what you've been basically fed or you know conditioned to believe for a long time, us then giving that permission slip of like, it's actually inside you and you just need to practice listening again can be like earth shattering for people. Yes. And I always say, you don't need my permission, but you do need yours. And so I do have like a whole section in there that's like permission to customize everything. Permission, if you, you don't need mine, but if you need a voice in your head to remind you that, um, you know, if you haven't ever stopped to listen, sometimes that's actually hard because what, what you hear in your voice and your head is not kind. And that can be a really difficult. Um, but yeah, I mean, health isn't one size fits all. And I'm not sure why we're even having to keep, like why we're still right here saying this and the, seems to be like radical again. Um, and, but like from a science-based perspective, there are things that we know really help. And, and there's a chapter in the book about finding your brilliant at your basics, at the basics or your 80, 20 or 20% of your habits that lead to 80% of results. And usually those are the things though that we kind of know that seem almost too basic. And so I, it's always really interesting to me from a psychological standpoint that people are more willing to try like the really extreme elimination, random, you know, combos of food that you are and are not allowed to eat than just like drinking more water, eating more veggies, 
working on their sleep, you know, hygiene, doing some stress reduction. And so there are things we know that work for most people, but it's also knowing that like, I need to, I need to own this for myself and figure out which parts work best for me. Um, and that feels one, like you said, we're conditioned the other way, but also we don't have always the tools to do that right off the bat, the skills, but those are also learnable skills that you can learn um, in various ways. Definitely. And, you know, sometimes the, well, I would say a lot of the time, right? The learning to trust your own intuition and the signals that your body's giving you are a lot harder because you're taking the reins back and you're not just handing them to someone else being like, okay, tell me what to do. I hear all the time. I just want somebody to tell me what to do. And that is a perfectly, um, you know, normalized coping mechanism, especially in a world where you're so overwhelmed by everything and the amount of things on your to-do list. You don't want to have to take the time to, again, figure all this out for yourself because that is harder than just following somebody else's meal plan or detox or diet or whatever it is. But I will say it is definitely 100% worth it in the long run. It is. And I think too, like what we know about learning in the brain is that when you're a beginner, you, the, the way that beginners learn is by emulating what's already been done. So it's very um, like cognitively normal to crave that structure. Um, I will say that there's like a reframe on that rather than tell me what to do. It's like, tell me what, you know, typically works like the most basic things that work one. And number two is to ask yourself, what am I doing right now? And that's the step that most people skip that again, from a behavioral change, behavior change, the behavior analysis, the first thing that I would ever do with a client or a person that I'm working with is that you would look at what they are already doing. Most people skip that step. And when you don't know what you're doing now, it's very hard to make a plan for what you want to do. And most often what you do is make a plan that's so far away from what you're doing now that it's like, there's no possible way that's going to happen. So there's many things I wish you get from this conversation, but that's another like takeaway is really when you're feeling like, tell me what to do, ask, what am I doing right now? So that you have clear sense of where you're starting from. Yeah. And where am I right now? And what are the small things that I can implement that can start to get me closer to where I want to be from an abundance and adding in perspective rather than a restrictive and let's eliminate all the things perspective? Yes. So I talk about should to good. So sometimes I suggest people make a should to good list in like as applied to food and like meals, movement and mind are the categories I usually get people. But um, should is all the things you think you're supposed to do and good is how you, you know, what would be good for you, but to start looking at those small shifts with what you're doing right now. So if you're feeling like your sleep is not how you want it to be, or your relationship with your phone is not how you want it to be to take two or three days and actually track your behavior with those things. And then say like, what would be a small shift that I could make here? in an adding other than an elimination kind of way. So I do think there are people out there that could help you with this too, if you want some support. I know Dana is one of them. Um, But that just 
truly, I keep saying this, but from a science-based perspective, that it will work and it will work long-term, like through your whole life rather than just for six months or a year or two days. Yeah. Or like, you know, when we're looking at January right now, like the two week quick fix or the 21 day, whatever, or the 30 day, four week, whatever, like we're trying to find how to feel good for much, much, much longer than that. So you don't have to keep repeating the same shoulds over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I think about how much mental energy that we waste in this process of shoulds and falling off the wagon and the beating ourselves up and wishing we were somewhere in the past. And it really breaks my heart, honestly, to think about the human potential that is lost in that. And so that's for for me personally, and now through my mission and my method with others, it's like, let's, this is a precious resource. Our mental energy and attention are precious resources. How do we want to spend them? And we only have one life right? And so can we spend it trying to feel good? Love that. Well, I mean, I think that's a great place to close off the podcast. Close off, what am I talking about? End the (laughs) podcast, end the episode. (laughs) So Robin, thank you. Thank you for coming on. Um, If people want to find you, if people want to find your book and all the things, where can they do that? Yes, you can find me on realfoodwholelife.com. We have a couple of free resources there, um, like just some of the things we talked about today. And then on Instagram at Real Food Whole Life, I'd love to connect with you if you listened and chat more about this. And then the book is The Feel Good Effect and the podcast is The Feel Good Effect. So I think if you like this conversation, you like the show there and uh, the book is also an audiobook as well. So pretty much something for everybody. Hey there. Thanks for listening to The Real Talk with Dana podcast with me, your host, Dana, obviously. And I just wanted to say, you're the best. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your family and friends. Maybe send a five-star rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Why would you do that, you ask? Because this helps more people find the show so that we can spread the food and body peace word, break down diet culture, and the unrealistic beauty standards that make us all feel like we need to shrink ourselves with food and exercise in order to be worthy in the world, which sucks. For discussion on the show episodes, if you want to request a guest or ask a question, if you'd like some support, please join the non-diet community on Facebook, which is a free group where you can go get some community and support. I'll see you over there and see you next week.